Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we conclude our series today, Easter According to the Gospel of John, with a message titled, Acknowledging Jesus as Lord. So turning your Bibles to John chapter 21, verses 20 to 25, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. The greatest privilege that any believer has is to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. But what quite practically does that mean? You know, some of you have heard the story I'm about to tell, and you'll enjoy it anyway. Years ago, before current navigational systems, the captain of a ship looked into the dark night and saw faint lights in the distance directly in front of him. Immediately, he recognized they were approaching a vessel, and he told his signalman to send a message. Alter your course 10 degrees to the south. Shortly, a message came back, alter your course 10 degrees north. The captain was put off by the reply and he sent a second message. I am Naval Captain Carter. Alter your course 10 degrees south. The reply came back. I am Seaman Third Class Jones. Alter your course 10 degrees north. Well, the captain was furious. He sent a third message. I'm a U.S. Navy battleship. Alter your course 10 degrees south. And the reply came back immediately. Alter your course 10 degrees north. I'm the lighthouse. (laughs) Well, when we call Jesus Christ Lord, we know immediately who's going to alter their course. You see, to call Jesus Lord is not to open doors for negotiations with him or to demand from him that he act in ways we want. He's not moving. He's the lighthouse and his way blocks ours. Lordship is a military term. It demands obedience and submission from us without negotiation. And this relationship with Jesus is a privilege to the true believer. So once we understand that, not that we make Jesus Lord because we can't make him Lord, he's Lord whether we like it or not, but that we acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, well, then things go well. If on the other hand, we don't acknowledge his Lordship, we crash into the rocks and bring destruction upon ourselves, not on him because he's Lord. And we've come to the end of our study of the Gospel of John. And I want to end our study of this marvelous book by seeing Christ as John wants us to see him, Lord and God. This is demonstrated by his miracles. He's the Lord of nature. It's demonstrated in the fact that he speaks on behalf of the Father. It's demonstrated in the title the disciples use to address him. They call him Lord. But it's also demonstrated in what Jesus demands of his disciples. John 14, verse 1, he said, believe in me. And in John 14, 15, he said, keep my commandments. And in John 15, verse 5, he said, without me, you can do nothing. And then in John 15, 14, he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Jesus demanded a kind of relationship with the disciples that placed himself first, and in them, they were to submit. So how does this work out in real life? You'll remember in John 21, the last chapter of John, it's a kind of an appendix in this book that speaks, you know, about the mission that Jesus gave his disciples. If they're going to be on mission, they had better get very clear who was giving the orders and who was following them. So let's read our text, John 21, 20 to 25. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? 
And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Well, the last passage of the Gospel of John follows on the heels of Jesus reinstating Peter and assuring him that he will indeed fulfill the mission he has given to him. But let's get back to this scene between Jesus and Peter on the lake shore. So I've argued that the conversation between Peter and Jesus occurred while they were walking. John is right behind them, listening to every word. Five times in this book, John is identified as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so how so? Was he loved more than the rest of the disciples? Well, we know that Jesus spent extra time with three of his disciples, that is, Peter, James, and John. They were in his inner circle. And we also know that Jesus took these three up the mountain of transfiguration. We know that it was James and John who, because of close relationship with Jesus, requested that they would have the right to sit on his right and on his left side. That wasn't their best hour. Now, during the Last Supper, John had been seated next to Jesus. And when the question arose as to who would betray Jesus, John asked it. And on the cross, John seems of all the disciples to have been left standing at the foot of the cross. And there Jesus had insisted that John would take in Mary, Jesus' mother, and care for her as if she was his own mother. Indeed, according to historical sources, John settled in the city of Ephesus, where he looked after Mary until the day of her death. And so whatever the reason for John following so close to Jesus and Peter, I I think it was much more than eavesdropping. John seems to have been there close to Jesus at all times, taking whatever assignments Jesus had to give him. He's always ready to do whatever was needed. And furthermore, we're not to think that Peter and John were, you know, somehow at odds with each other. And Peter would take primary leadership in the church when it began, but John would be working with him. You know, in Acts chapter 3, the healing of the man at the temple, I mean, who was there? I mean, it was Peter and John working together. In Acts 4, it was Peter and John standing side by side before the Sanhedrin, giving bold testimony of Jesus together. And in Acts chapter 8, the preaching of the gospel in Samaria, again, it was Peter and John sent by the church in Jerusalem who prayed for the new seekers in Samaria that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now, these men weren't competitors. They were partners, two men who were deep friends, who were honored to work together with one another. Now, let's get back to our scene on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Peter and Jesus are in deep dialogue, and John, I assume, is walking just a little behind them. Jesus is telling Peter that the cost of discipleship that he will bear will result in suffering and eventually in a martyr's death. And Peter says, well, if that's how it's going to be with me, what about him? If I'm not going to last long, if it's going to be very painful, am I the only one? Now, if truth were told, Peter would not be the only one to die a martyr's death. I mean, less than 10 years after this conversation, James, the brother of John, would be the first in that group to die. See, according to Acts 12, he was beheaded by King Herod Agrippa I, who was the grandson of Herod, who killed the boys in Bethlehem. But what about John? 
Is he going to get a pass on suffering and martyrdom? And Jesus' answer was simple. If I want him to remain alive until I come again, well, that's simply none of your business. And there's a principle here. It's about the lordship of Jesus, and I simply don't want us to miss. And before we examine it, let's consider how different the lives of these two men, Peter and John, turned out. Peter, as we know, was the leader of the apostolic band. He was the man chosen to preach on the day of Pentecost. He was in the limelight. He would be called a pillar of the church in Galatians 2 verse 9. He took key leadership at the Council of Jerusalem, that's recorded in Acts 15, which set the stage for the evangelization of the Gentiles. But in spite of this, his primary mission was going to remain with the Jewish people because later on, God would call Paul specifically to play the role of the missionary to the Gentiles. But Peter continued to be the key leader in the early church. And with all his leadership duties, Peter also suffered. He was imprisoned several times in Jerusalem. And after that, he seems to have moved further afield, even into Gentile territory. But there's a theme in all his ministry. See, when he wrote his two letters, First and Second Peter, the theme of suffering, the theme of resisting false teachers, I mean, those are clearly at the heart of his ministry. He's constantly fighting with foes on the outside and on the inside of the church. He doesn't seem to have had much time to write. You know, even though it seems that he wanted to write a life of Christ, time must have made it impossible. And so the writing of the gospel of Jesus would be then entrusted to his helper, who was Mark, who wrote the gospel of Mark that Peter would have written if the time had been his. But Peter would never have that kind of time to get quietly away and write. Jesus had determined, after all, he's Lord, and Jesus had determined that Peter would live a different kind of life and have a different kind of ministry. You may think that estate planning is only for the wealthy, but decisions about your home, family, your retirement, or even how you'd like to see your money used for ministry and for the kingdom. Well, that's important. Back to the Bible Canada has partnered with Advisors with Purpose to help you start and discuss those important decisions. Their trained estate specialists are available to meet you by phone and provide you with the information to make the best decisions possible for you and your family. As a result of our partnership, Advisors with Purpose has made their services free and confidential to you alone, leaving you free from any obligation. It's never too early to plan for your future, so call them today. To speak to an estate specialist today, call 1-866-336-3315. That's 1-866-336-3315 or visit advisorswithpurpose.ca for your free and confidential consult. Seems likely that before he was crucified in Rome, Peter endured torture and was imprisoned in absolute darkness for nine months. That was his lot in life. It was demanding, it was tough, brutal, hard. And then Christ called him home. And in contrast, John's life was very different. Unlike Peter, John did not die as a martyr. Yeah, he did suffer, and yeah, he was imprisoned. 
We also know that near the end of his life, he was, in fact, exiled on the Greek island of Patmos for a short period of time. And by all accounts, he returned after his exile back to the city in which he had taken residence. That was Ephesus. And there he seems to have had the time to become a thoroughgoing theologian. He had a more serene and very long life of reflection and writing in which he was given time to write the Gospel of John, the three letters of John, as well as the book of Revelation while he was on the island of Patmos. The lives of these two men turned out very differently. What about him, said Peter, and Jesus said, that's not your affair. See, in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5, Paul writes the Corinthian church about his relationship to Apollos. Apollos was the great preacher, and Paul the church planter and theologian. Here's what he says. What then is Apollos, what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. So look at it this way. If Jesus is Lord, he will then decide the particulars of your life and what place and station in life you can serve him best. That's his call and not yours. You're not the Lord of your life, he is. And reflecting on that, I like what John Kelvin wrote. He said, out of 10 persons, it may happen that God will choose one that he may try him by heavy calamities or by vast labors, and that he shall permit the other nine to remain at ease or at least shall try them lightly. And if that is what happens to you, and you complain under your heavy burden, and the other person's burden seems light, Jesus answers by saying, what is that to you? Would you feel better if everyone was tried as heavily as you are? Well, perhaps you would, but that's strange. The story is told of a pastor who was asked to write to his denomination and give an account of the growth of the church he was leading. And he said, "Uh, well, there's good news and bad news. The bad news is that the attendance is down, but the good news is it's the same for every other church in town. I mean, doesn't misery love company? Or perhaps we complain that one person gets more accolades and praises for their ministry gifts than we do. What is that to you? Or you may complain that you have so few gifts and others have so many. What is that to you? Paul would say in Galatians 6 verse 5, for each will have to bear his own load. And if we want to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, we will have to begin by accepting his assignment for each of us and rejoicing and thanking God for our station in life. You know, if you today are grouching about your situation, you know, and complaining about your lot in life that it's worse than in others, it's because you haven't yet fully acknowledged the Lordship of Christ. Now then, John adds that a saying spread abroad that he would not die until Jesus returned a second time. And that's an interesting note. It turns out there were those who thought that the age of John was an indicator of how close we were to our Lord's return. Well, that seems to be that in 2,000 years, we've had a lot of other people giving signs as to, you know, how close we are to the Lord's return. You know, whether it's an upheaval somewhere on earth or news of a financial downturn or the development of a weapon that can destroy all life or the rise of a political leader somewhere that we think might be the Antichrist, I hear in Jesus a statement, the word. What is that to you? Be faithful in what God has called you to do. You know, I've often spoken about this idea that, you know, we can become aware of how close we are to the second coming. Since Jesus told us that we won't know, you want to read Matthew 25, 13, then just assume we won't know. Now, I know these are all matters, you know, of our view of the end time, but there's something very important I would hope that we could all agree on. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. 
the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So notice the categories, secret things and revealed things. Secret things don't belong to us. They belong to God. You know, there are some people who are shaky on the fundamentals of the faith and on the nature of the gospel. But sometimes these very same people express assurance on things that are not clear, that have not been revealed to us. You know, some time ago, you know, a man sent me a prophecy saying that anyone belonging to a church not teaching his view of end times would be left behind. And, you know, I was unsure of what to make of, you know, his prophecy. I said, I actually know from Jesus and the apostles on what basis a man is accepted or rejected before the throne of God. And I know it isn't your view of eschatology or the end times. We need to major on the things that Jesus majored on. So let's hear what Jesus said. Jesus said, and I'm reading Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, clearly, here's a sign of the end times. When the gospel has been proclaimed to all the nations, when is that done? Well, the Greek word for nations in this passage is the word ethne, you know, from which we get our English word ethnic. And I say this because in the time of Jesus, the idea of nation states as we have them today, well, that had not yet been invented. So what did Jesus mean? Well, I know today there are nations, especially in what has been called the 1040 window, that is 10 and 40 degrees latitude north in the earth, there is virtually no gospel witness. So to what extent does the gospel witness need to go out? The answer is, I don't know. Wait for it. Neither do you. Here then is the point of the lordship of Jesus. Jesus is not only Lord of our lives, he's also Lord of history, the Lord who determines the time and seasons of things. The secret things belong to him. You and I should become masters in the things that are revealed. You know, someone once asked a famous Bible teacher, are you bothered by the things you don't understand in the Bible? And he said, no, I'm bothered by the things I do understand. See, to call him Lord is to do the things he told us to do and to trust him in the things he has declared to us, not to speculate about the things that belong to the hidden counsels of God. So let's review the last two verses in John. Notice, first of all, from verse 24, that the things written in this book were attested by an early Christian community. In other words, all manner of people knew the things that John wrote about were true. And then he adds something that at first glance seems like an extravagant exaggeration. All the books in the world could not contain all that Jesus did. Well, especially in our world, you know, with uncounted books and internet sites, while it seems highly unlikely. But let me suggest this is not an exaggeration at all. I know that Jesus lived less than 40 years on earth. I also know that the material that we have on his life is but a fraction of what he did. I mean, what about his childhood or his adolescence? And in even those three years of ministry, there's so much more that could have been recorded. But we have in the Bible a fraction of all that Jesus said and did. You know, what were Christ's thoughts on world history, on the development of culture, Uh, what he thought about ancient Greek philosophers. Well, the topics could go on and on. But there's more. John places Jesus into eternal status. In the beginning, he says, was the word Jesus. Jesus has existed for all eternity. What was he up to in eternity past before he created the universe? And what's he up to in directing the history of the world today? 
especially the way the world and culture and events are shaped. I mean, why this and not something else? You see, there's so much that the Bible doesn't address. But here we have to come to terms with something. God oversaw the giving of revelation. It was he who in the Bible gave us exactly what we have and what we need. To call Jesus Lord is to confess that he is Lord of our lives, Lord of history, also Lord of revelation. We don't know all things. We know what he has revealed to us. Most of the errors that lead people astray come from our speculation about what might have been rather than our submission to what God has shown. So then to call Jesus Lord is to fully, in every area, submit to him, to his direction in our lives, in what he has chosen to show us, become an expert in obedience and thankfulness and in the revelation he has given, submit to his word and his instruction, and find this to be joyful beyond words. In the end, the best response to a study of the book like John in which we learn so much about Christ, is to respond and say, Jesus, you alone are Lord, and I am your servant. And as your servant, I gladly surrender to you. John, you know, we've come to the end of your teaching on the Gospel of John. Let me ask you, is there a theme that stands out to you? Something you would say that if you learn one thing about our Lord, it would be this. Well, I think, uh, you know, if I think about what John is communicating to us, that we might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing that we might have life in his name. The Gospel of John, I think, is intended to teach us what it means to truly believe. Um, so, you know, um, early on, we are told that, of course, that there were those who uh, believed in his name, but that Jesus wouldn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. So these were individuals who loved his miracles, but are not willing to bend the knee and uh, entrust their lives to him, so, you know, repent of their sins, trust their lives, follow Jesus for a lifetime. So John is this marvelous, I mean, the Gospel of John is a marvelous invitation for us to come and truly believe in Jesus and to say, to do so is worth a lifetime. So I love how the Gospel of John ends because of that. You know, Jesus saying to uh, Peter, you know, um, you know, don't worry about someone else, just you come and follow me. So that's the good news. It's a call to follow Jesus and to believe. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. As cherished children of God, we all share the great commission to spread the gospel across the globe. This is no simple command, but if we partner with each other, we stand a much greater chance of enriching the lives of many with the good news of Jesus Christ. This month to commemorate the importance of this partnership, Back to the Bible Canada is celebrating our monthly partners who bless this ministry with their consistent gifts. Thank you so much for your continued support. Our Bible teaching and engagement resources simply cannot exist without it. By donating monthly, you join our 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner Program and gain access to all its unique benefits. To find out more about these exclusive benefits or to become an 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner, just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.com.
www.ghostbusinessradio.ca.